Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 37 and go through the end of the chapter this morning. And think about how Jesus denounces hypocrisy. It's a very encouraging sermon this morning. That's sarcasm. Um, I'm glad to be the one to get to share with you such a strong message from the Lord. The good news is Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are not truly converted. They are people who are wrapped up in a false worship, a false religion. So if you declare that that's not you this morning, then these words are definitely a warning, something to take into consideration, but they're not directed at people who worship Christ. This is a warning, especially for those who are uh, self-deceived, thinking they worship Christ, but in actuality do not. Would you read with me Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37, and think about how Jesus denounces hypocrisy. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Well, tough words from our Lord to the Pharisees and the lawyers. We'll see exactly what he meant before it's over today. Pretty clear, though. Judgment is coming to them. If you have your Bibles, would you turn over to Math, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, chapter 9, just a couple pages over? I think it would be helpful to, for us to, to see uh, what this section, what's going on in this section of Luke. In Luke's gospel, chapter 11 comes in the major section, which begins at chapter 9, verse 51. Look at that verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And here we get a better understanding of what's going on in the life of Christ. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And there's more to that phrase than what it sounds like in verse 51. Go to verse 22 of chapter 13. Again, we hear, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then again, in chapter 17 and verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And then in chapter 18, verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And here we get a little glimpse of just what's going on while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Once more in chapter 19 and verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Get the idea? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 19 and verse 28 at the triumphal entry, the last week of Jesus' life, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And finally, in chapter 19 and verse 41, he arrives. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And as we read that phrase, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus going to Jerusalem, we could add the, the few words in order to die there. And this major section in Luke's gospel is pointing to how Jesus is, really as I read it, I, I feel like he's, he's recognizing more and more the weight of going to the cross. And as he travels through these towns and cities and he speaks and he teaches and he discusses with the different people, the crowds of the Pharisees, his disciples, more and more is the weight of the cross coming to bear upon his life. And now he finally gets to the city and his own kinsmen, the people of Jerusalem, he's weeping for them because they will not receive the very death he is about to experience. And in chapter 11, our passage for today is in the midst of this whole section. And so as Jesus gives these woes, he pronounces what is truly a curse upon these Pharisees, he's not simply giving a lighthearted jab. You know, you should change the way you live because it's not good. No, he's not saying that. Jesus is fully understanding what is about to happen to him. And he is explaining to these religious leaders that their way of life is false. It's empty. It is leading to a place of woe, to a curse, not to blessing. As I was preparing for this sermon, I had considered using a title something like uh, A Successful Attempt at Evangelism Explosion. If you're familiar with that evangelism plan, here is Jesus. He's invited to someone's table for dinner. And he goes and dines with a Pharisee, a religious leader. And what does he do but blow things up? His words include, you fools, to everyone around the table. Woe to you. Another dinner guest speaks up. Teacher, you insult us also. And what does he say? Woe to you too. I may not suggest that as your first attempt at evangelism. But it may be appropriate sometimes. Yet in his omniscience and in Jesus' perfection, he can say these very things. Because in doing so, he is not insulting the character of a person 
he is declaring the eternity that awaits people who do not follow the Lord, who do not worship God correctly, who do not give their lives to Christ. These religious leaders were wrapped up in false religion, thinking that they are not only spiritually acceptable before God, but they also considered themselves as a model to be placed on a pedestal. And as we read Jesus' words, we understand clearly that that is far from his perception of them. In chapter 12, I know I'm asking you to look around a lot, but I think if we can put all these things together, you'll get a better picture of, of just what is going on. In chapter 12 and verse one, Jesus tells his disciples just after this passage, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of this thing that spreads so easily like a contagion. It is a life of hypocrisy. It seems like true religion, but it's not. It is a danger. Here's a warning, church, for all of us who think we are spiritual Especially for spiritual leaders, Jesus' words here to the Pharisees and to the lawyers are not words of commendation, but they're words of condemnation. And so we must be careful that the, the spirituality that we profess is genuine, is authentic. And let's look at how Jesus denounces hypocrisy, a false religion, in four parts. There should be words on your notes there. The first is a demonstration we can see a demonstration of hypocrisy. Look back in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And here's the setting for the whole narrative. Likely this Pharisee had heard Jesus preaching before, maybe uh, in the, the events that went on earlier in chapter 11. If you've read this portion of scripture, we've actually been through a, a part of these uh, passages uh, in other weeks. Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees, these religious leaders, that they have no Holy Spirit in them. In verses 14 through 26, they, they have only demonic spirits. Tough words. In verses 27 and 28, he implies that they are not obedient to God's word. In verses 29 through 32, he says they seek a sign, but they're only going to receive judgment. In verses 33 to 36, they they think they have a light, but the light in them is only darkness. So Jesus has already preached and re against them and rebuked them. And this Pharisee, maybe think, he thinks, if I can get Jesus just alone in a more personal setting, I can get some explanation, maybe some clarification. Or maybe he just wanted to trick Jesus, trap him in something that he might say. <clears throat> but these Pharisees, in case you're not aware, they were a religious sect in Israel, a, a group of, of people who were in affiliation around certain common portions of their religion. Uh, they began as a group who sought personal holiness. Here's a fancy word for you. The Hasidim were seeking to live a holy life. They attempted zealous, zealously strict adherence to God's law. They wanted to obey exactly what God had said to do, but Without the Holy Spirit, that quickly morphs into selfish pride. They were, uh, they called themselves basically a separatist group. That's what Pharisee means, is separate. They thought themselves separate from the common people, separate from 
from legal and religious contamination. They saw themselves as ultra-holy. What, des- what started as a desire for holiness became a product of haughtiness. They were proud to be the religious leaders who were holier than everyone else. Even the common people recognized the Pharisees as supremely spiritual. They looked up to them as people who, who did obey the law. They, they knew what God's law said and they kept the law. They, they valued obedience to the law and they observed obedience to the law. So they were seen as supremely pious people held up on a pedestal even by the common people. But it was all a sham. The religion of the Pharisees was false. They seemed holy, but they were not holy. And we read so much conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus because he calls them out for what they really are, hypocrites. Not only that, but as he preached, he got a lot of attention from the people. The Pharisees enjoyed the attention the people gave them, but Jesus was soon detracting from that attention and and gaining attention from the people. So he threatened their power. So the Pharisees... We're in conflict with our Lord. This Pharisee was just like the rest. He realized the conflict that Jesus uh, was causing in his preaching. So he invited Jesus over, maybe to trap him, but Jesus is not going to be deceived. Look in verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he, Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. Now, this has nothing to do with dirt on Jesus' hands. If you tell your kids to go wash before dinner, that's probably a very wise thing to do for the health of everyone in the home. But the Pharisee was not worried about Jesus' hygiene. He was worried about his religious and ceremonial cleanness. If you would like, turn over to Mark chapter 7. And the Bible gives us a little comment in Mark chapter 7 that explains this whole situation. Mark chapter 7 and verse 3. It tells us the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And they're always washing something because they want everything to be clean. See, the idea is if I went out in the marketplace, I might have encountered someone who wasn't a Jew I might have touched him. He might have accidentally touched me. I might have touched something that he touched. And now I'm not clean before, before the Lord. So I have to wash. I have to wash everything that's included in this process. My hands, the couch, the vessels that I'm using. So the, the Pharisees had this, this process of washing to be ceremonial clean. They had put a lot of weight on obedience to an oral tradition They added hundreds of non-biblical instructions to God's law and treated those instructions as if they were the law. They had applied God's law, sought to apply the law of God in as many ways as they could, and they turned that application into the law itself. For example, kids, how many of your parents, let's say your mother, would love to have breakfast in bed every Saturday? You can even raise your hand if you think that that's true. Yeah. Well, if your mother would enjoy that, that is a great way that you could honor your mother. You know, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother, right? If we were Pharisees today, we would think, oh, that, 
That's very good. That is a great way to honor our parents, to keep the fifth commandment, bring breakfast in bed every Saturday. And so that application in the mind of the Pharisees would turn into part of the law. If you want to obey the fifth commandment, you must cook and serve breakfast in bed every Saturday. And if you don't, you are living in sin. Now that's a very funny illustration to us, but that's exactly the problem with the Pharisees' tradition. They had sought to apply the law in hundreds of different ways, which may be valid ways to apply it, but they turned that application into the law itself. That is not valid. And here we have the same thing going on. They sought to be holy and pure, and they turned that into wash your hands before you eat. Now, I did a little search, and I tried to find these instructions, this oral tradition. It's called the Mishnah. And the Jews wrote out many, many instructions for washing your hands. And I found a reference, four pages worth of instructions and notes on how to wash before dinner, how to hold your hands and how to pour the water and how much water to use and what happens if you accidentally drop something in the water? What happens if something comes out of the water that wasn't supposed to be there like a rock? What happens in all these different cases? And the Jews held to this tradition as law. So when the Pharisee sees that Jesus does not first wash before dinner, he is astounded because Jesus is not holy. But it was all extra. It was all over and above what God had commanded. In the Pharisee's eye, Jesus is defiled. And yet, Jesus is the Son of God. How can the Son of God eat dinner and be defiled? We know that that is impossible. That is an absurd thought. And we laugh or we cringe at such thinking, thinking it ridiculous, but we must be careful because have you ever eaten dinner with a friend or a family member and they just get right at it, eating their food before you have the chance to say the blessing? And what's the very next thought? Have you ever thought, uh oh, that's not right? Could they even not be Christian if they don't bless the food before they eat? Maybe you've never had that thought. But that's the same type of thinking, the same process, the same slippery slope. If we're not careful, we can add to God's law and turn that addition into the law itself. But that is a uh, false pretense. The Pharisees were confused and had deceived themselves in this way. For this Pharisee, he he decided to judge righteousness by whether or not Jesus poured water over his hands. But church, righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the hands. This Pharisee was concerned only with the outward display. But our Lord, look at how he responds. Before the Pharisee can even speak up, Jesus, who knows every matter of the heart, responds to him. And I want you to see next an explanation of hypocrisy. An explanation of hypocrisy. In verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It's not external religion that makes a person right with God. Christ makes a person right with God. And a changed heart is what proves that righteousness. What is on the outside is of far lesser weight than what is on the inside of a person. 
God is concerned with changing a person so that what he does shows who he is. Let me say that again. God is concerned with changing a person so that what he does shows who he is. And a person who is truly righteous will have a pure heart as well as pure actions. So Jesus points this Pharisee to matters of the heart. Having a cup and a dish that is clean on the outside but is filthy on the inside is of no value. The inside must be clean also. Have you ever emptied your dishwasher and you pulled out a mug and you looked inside and it was still had filth in it? It might have actually been dirtier than when you put it in there. It's happened to me before. Maybe we don't use the right detergent. I don't know. But do you just put that on the shelf and then drink out of it later? Absolutely not. You either put it back in the dishwasher if you're like me or if you're more responsible, you wash it in the sink to make sure that it's clean. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You don't, it doesn't matter if it's clean on the outside. What matters is if it's clean on the inside. Christ is speaking here in terms of giving alms. He uses those words, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. And what he's saying is make an offering which is genuine. Make an offering to the Lord which is from the heart. Offer to God your heart, your attitude of submission and love and everything will be clean. Doesn't matter if you come up with these hundreds of instructions and ways to apply God's law. If your heart is clean, you will do what is right before God. Because a right heart is the root of right living. And this had always been the right theological understanding. Righteousness has never come by works. It has always been by faith. And Jews had gotten this wrong for centuries. For example, in Isaiah chapter 1, the people still were committed to worship, but it was an empty worship. And God rebukes them for their empty worship In chapter 1 and verse 11, he says things like, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. They they were still committed to their, their sacrificial system, but it did not display what was in their heart. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. In verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. God is not concerned with grand displays of worship and offering if if it doesn't come from a pure heart. In verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Be changed on the inside and let that work out a right attitude and a right show of mercy on the outside. Your worship means nothing if it doesn't come from a, from a genuine heart. They continued to get it wrong even after Jesus died and was resurrected. This is why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin... The law doesn't bring righteousness. The law brings knowledge of sin. But now, Paul wrote, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, but the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What this Pharisee needed to see is that 
the appropriate course of action for him was not to measure cleanliness by washing of hands, but to measure his heart by whether he was devoted to Christ or not. God has chosen to take our sin, to impart to us his righteousness, based not upon what we do, because we will never earn it, but, be, but based upon our believing upon his son, Jesus Christ. Church, we are insufficient for holiness, but if we trust the sufficiency of Christ, then everything will be made right for us, and it would have been for the Pharisees also. That was the grace of God. It still is. Well, next, I want to give you the word condemnation. Look at the condemnation of hypocrisy, beginning in verse 42. Jesus speaks to the character of this Pharisee and later the character of the lawyers. We read six times in this portion of the passage the word woe. You've probably heard that word from the Bible before. It comes with a long history of prophetic weight. The prophets were always using this word. And dozens of times you'll find in the Old Testament the prophets would pronounce woe upon this or that or this person or this group of people. I could give you for a long time a list of woes from the Old Testament prophets. Just a short list might include. From Isaiah chapter 1, God through Isaiah pronounced woes upon the sinful people. He pronounced woes in Isaiah chapter 5 on the wicked of God's people. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, upon those who write unjust laws. In chapter 29 of Isaiah, upon those who act as if God does not see them. Jeremiah pronounced woe upon nations who are without God. Ezekiel pronounced woes on the foolish prophets who speak their own words instead of God's words. Hosea said, woe to those who have strayed from the Lord. And woe to them when the Lord departs. The prophet Amos spoke woe to those who were at ease in their sin. Habakkuk pronounced woe to those who value their own glory and pleasure above the well-being of others. And he pronounced woes upon idol worshipers. And then the prophet Zephaniah spoke woes to the pagans of the world whom the Lord is against, he will destroy them. This word woe is a, is a word of judgment. As we hear this, we think that Jesus, we know that Jesus is declaring the fate of the Pharisees. It will not be like the, the holy ones, the righteous who receive God's blessing. This word woe is the opposite of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are righteous in God's sight. Woe are they who are wicked in God's sight. Woe points to intense hardship, disaster, horror that will come upon these people. One lexicon said, we, we can read it as if Jesus was saying, what terrible pain will come to you, Pharisees. How greatly you Pharisees will suffer. And for these reasons. What would happen to the Pharisees in eternity? Church is not, not a grand outlook. They are going to receive the opposite of blessing and eternal bliss in heaven in the presence of God they would receive eternal cursing now Jesus could either be actively cursing these religious leaders or he may be just declaring the truth what will come to them either way the outcome is the same <clears throat> the judgment upon a hypocritical religious fanatic is just as horrific as the pagan who never decides to worship God at all 
He who falsely worships the Lord has no reason to expect anything but terror in eternity. Well, Jesus speaks to the the character of the Pharisees, which receives this condemnation. Look first at their superficial sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was not authentic. In verse 42, Woe to you, Pharisees! You tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So they would give 10% of even the most insignificant kitchen herbs. You know, can you imagine bringing your basil and your garlic to the church and putting it in the box? And that sounds like a wonderful offering. Even the little things they would give, but that's exactly the point. Even the little things I have given, I have tithed even my herbs. When all that was prescribed in the law was to tithe from the major crops And the point was so that they might display a heart devoted to God and share in the care of those who were in need. But Jesus points out that the Pharisees were all hypocrites. They gave of their herbs, not because they loved God, but because they loved themselves. Not because they loved their neighbors, but they loved themselves. And they wanted their neighbors to see how much they were giving. This is precisely legalism doing things for God without doing things out of love for God. The Pharisees tithed out of love for self and they were glad when others recognized their achievement. And that's the second character that Jesus points out. Look in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They had this proud sense of entitlement. A legalistic or hypocritical frame of mind is glad to receive honor for its spiritual accomplishments. When it does something that it seems, when it looks like it's a grand spiritual thing, it wants everyone to know, look at what I have done. And for the Pharisees, it came in the form of the best seats in the religious services, way down up front. I'm glad to know we don't have any Pharisees here today. So that everyone could see that they're sitting right in the front where the word of God is heard. Or it came in the form of an ostentatious greeting in the marketplaces. These greetings were loud and bold and long so that everyone knew it was the Pharisee who was approaching in the presence of everyone. Now, truly, good seats in the church, they're not wrong. These are the good seats, even though my family sits on the back row. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with a nice greeting in the public places. What's wrong with these things for the Pharisees is not those things themselves, but the fact that they loved them and they desired them and they thought they were entitled to them. They expected the attention. They considered themselves as deserving of such recognition. They were the spiritual elite and they wanted everyone to know it. The irony here is that they really didn't deserve it. They were very empty. Think with me, what did Jesus teach in Matthew 6? If you practice your righteousness to be seen by others, and actually precisely what he says here, in the same places, in the synagogues and in the street corners, if you practice your righteousness in the public so that everyone sees, you have your reward. There's nothing to be rewarded for. You've got your very reward, Jesus said. I wonder, is that a worthwhile trade? Is that worth it to us? Good seats and fancy greetings for all of eternity? Absolutely not. Well, the third woe is upon their mistaken sanctity. In verse 44, Woe to you, 
For you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. All of these things have the opposite effect from that which the Pharisees had planned. They saw themselves as leading the people to spirituality, to spiritual health. They thought themselves, as I said earlier, examples to be put on display, but they were precisely the opposite of that. In reality, they didn't show others the way of righteousness. They, they showed others the way of destruction. Numbers 19.16 tells us part of God's law, which said that to touch a dead body or a grave made a person unclean for seven days. The Pharisees had extended that and said, if even your shadow touches a grave, you are unclean. And so they would whitewash tombs so that no one would mistake, that's a tomb, that's a grave. I don't go anywhere near it because I will become unclean. But Jesus says, Pharisees, you're like graves with no marker. You're actually a grave in disguise. And all these who follow after you, all these who come in contact with you, they listen to you, they are spiritually defiled and they don't even realize it. The Pharisees were not leading people to God. They were turning people away from God. They were sinful, condemned, unclean. They weren't the only ones at the dinner. There were also lawyers there. Look in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He opened the door, and Jesus walks through it. Woe to you also, lawyers. These lawyers, is the, they're the same as in your Bibles, you might have the word scribes in some places. They were the same group of people. They weren't just religious by their affiliation. The, the law of God was their occupation. They, as one Bible encyclopedia says, their business was threefold. To study and interpret the law. Number two, to instruct Hebrew youth in the law. And then number three, to decide questions of the law. So they, their job was to know the law, to carry it out, and to pass it on. This was their job. If anyone should have gotten God's law right, it was these men, the lawyers, the experts in the law. And yet Jesus pronounces woes upon them also. And here's why. The first reason is because they were overly burdensome. In verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. It was these men who had developed this oral tradition, these extra things to add on to God's law. And what's worse, as they added these instructions upon God's law, they demanded that the people would follow these instructions, but God's word says they were unwilling to do them themselves. They added to what God had revealed and demanded that the people follow it. Here again, this is straight up hypocrisy. Matthew 23, 3 says, they preach, but they do not practice. And in doing so, they they demonstrate that either, either to these men, the tradition wasn't really too critical, or they considered themselves above the law. Either way, they're in error. I'd say it was probably a little of both. Not only were they overly burdensome, but they had, they had a proven heritage of guilt. Look in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. One commentary said, it can be said of these lawyers, like father, like son. Their fathers killed the prophets, and these sons facilitated their burial. 
They acted as if they were doing a great grand show. Let's, let's develop these great monuments for the prophets. But they're actually truly showing that they approved of the prophet's murder. The prophets had been the mouthpiece of God, speaking against how the people had actually broken God's law. And ironically, these lawyers had approved of the murder of the prophets. Their job is to interpret and pass on God's law, and yet now here they approve of the killing of the prophets who speak against those who, who disobeyed God's law. There's a little bit of irony there. In their pride, they claimed some spiritual superiority. They were, these lawyers, the epitome of hypocrisy and false worship. And these qualities, hypocrisy, false worship, they don't produce born-again believers Hypocrisy reproduces unregenerate sinners. Their fathers were not God's people in the Old Testament who killed the prophets, and these men were also not true followers of the Lord. So rightly did Jesus pronounce woe upon them. In verse 49, Jesus says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of just this generation. Now, if your Bible is like mine, verse 49, the wisdom of God is capitalized as if that's a name or a specific person or a a character who said something. But if you look in the Old Testament or anywhere in Scripture, that quote is not found. And so we read that as if to say that God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles. And we would, we would affirm that God is the most wise of all beings. And as we read that statement, we don't really understand it, right? It's wise to send prophets who will be killed. Well, we would just stop sending people if they're going to be killed in our human wisdom, but it's God's wisdom who says, I'll send them prophets whom they will persecute and kill, and that will be a good thing. These lawyers would be guilty of the blood of all the prophets. Jesus says from Abel, which is in Genesis 4, all the way to Zechariah in Second Chronicles 24, from the beginning to the end, they had the message from God telling them to turn and repent and they had denied it they killed them all and yet God in his wisdom said this would happen the Puritan Thomas Watson explained God's wisdom like this the wisdom of God is seen in making the most desperate evils turn to the good of his children the wisdom of God is seen in that the sins of men shall carry on God's work yet he shall have no hand in their sin. The wisdom of God is seen in befooling wise men and in making their wisdom the means of their overthrow. I think that's a great description of exactly what's happening to the lawyers as Jesus speaks to them. It is only in God's wisdom that the death of all those prophets would work out for good, that the death of the prophets would carry on God's work, that the death of all those prophets would be the instrument of judgment for those who don't know the Lord. And so it's God's wisdom who saw the prophets should go and declare God's word, and yet these men approve of their murder. Maybe you're familiar with the 
parable of the wicked tenants from Luke chapter 20. If you remember, a man, Jesus tells, went and planted a vineyard and he went away to a far country for a long time and he decided one day that he would uh, send a servant to go glean some of his produce, some of his crop for himself. So he sent a servant to the tenants and requested some of their, their crops for himself. What did they do? They beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. So the man thought, well, I'll send another servant. He sent a second servant, and they beat that servant also and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent a third servant, and this would seem a little absurd eventually. The third servant is injured, the Bible says, wounded and sent away empty-handed. So the man thinks, well, what can I do? I will, I will send my beloved son. And instead of having a positive effect, what happened? The tenants killed the son. And Jesus uses that parable to explain to these very religious leaders exactly what has gone on in their own life. God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet, servant after servant of his to declare the truth of his word, and they have rejected them. So God has sent his very own beloved son, Jesus Christ. And yet, what did they do? They did exactly the same thing. They killed him. They put him on the cross. And the Bible says, as Jesus explains that parable, he says that the man will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so what has God done after Jesus came? The, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the Jews rejected the truth for so long. God took the kingdom from them and he gave it to the pagans, to the Gentiles. And church, we are here because of God's mercy God's grace. We are the Gentiles that God has offered his kingdom to. And the Jews were astounded by that truth. But it's because of their empty, false worship, always being stubborn, never turning to the Lord, that God has done that very thing. Lastly, these lawyers are condemned because they are living as spiritual roadblocks. Last in verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. <clears throat> I was thinking how for work I have to drive a lot. And twice this week, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes I encounter roadblocks or accidents that slow me down. Twice it happened this week. Once for just a few minutes, wasn't too bad. And another time, though, <clears throat> I sat for 30 minutes waiting to turn the corner, which was about a quarter of a mile away because an accident was all the way across Wolf River Boulevard uh, at Germantown, and the line was super long. Uh, and I say all that because even as bad as that roadblock was, it's nothing compared to these lawyers when it comes to spiritual matters. They did not enter the kingdom of God themselves, even though they had the very key within them. Not within them, but in their hands. Having God's law, which God had designed to point to Christ, they had the very thing God revealed to show the need for Christ and the way to get to Christ and the way to enter God's kingdom, and yet they had denied the use of that very key, setting up a roadblock not only for themselves, but all of their followers. And Jesus pronounced woe upon them because they not only keep themselves out of the kingdom, but they stop everyone else from going to the kingdom also. 
because they had turned away from the truth. They were not interpreters of God's law. They had deceived themselves. They had locked up the kingdom and failed to use the key and rejected the fact of passing the key on to others to enter into also what terror they would encounter. Last, I want you to see the determination of hypocrisy. Too often, when you point out things like this, especially to these spiritual leaders, they are not changed in their thinking. They are only hardened in their heart. They were not convicted and and turned to repentance to, to believe in Christ and follow him. No, they are determined to persist in their sin. In verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Hypocrisy and pride and self-deception, these things often go together, and these, these men are prime examples of such things. In these last two verses, they are determined to continue in their false worship. That's the nature of sin, right? It not only tricks you into thinking and doing unrighteous things, but it deceives you to think that that unrighteousness is actually right. They were not only deceived into performing false worship, but they were convinced that they were right. So much so that they continually persisted after Jesus. And that phrase, they're lying in wait for him, is like a hunter hunting its prey. They were always seeking a way to catch him in something he might say. To, to call him out. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that often they, they call him guilty of blasphemy, trying to turn his words against him. Sin isn't just okay with being wrong. Sin has to be right. And this is the life that the scribes and the Pharisees were living, pressing against Jesus constantly, verbally trying to manipulate him to say something they could use against him. these words are heavy the outlook for people who live this kind of spiritual life is not good in fact it is terror, horror woe, Jesus says seems very little encouragement for us today but it's a good warning just in case we get relaxed in our faith to be sure that we're not leading a life in hypocrisy, that we are authentic in our trust of Jesus as Lord, that nothing good lies within us, but everything good lies within him. And we do not trust in ourselves, but we trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For the Pharisees and the lawyers, their religion was all about them. And I would ask you, what's the focus of your religion? What's the focus of your spirituality? Even after Jesus had risen from the dead in Luke chapter 24, he had to rebuke some of his followers and said, Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The very things that the lawyers and the Pharisees had looked to for their false religion was actually the key to the truth. Was it not necessary, Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Church, the law 
was not meant to prop us up as those who can achieve something good. The law was meant to show us that we need the only one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. God in his grace has given us what we need. It's not in us. It's from him. Let us be devoted to him, to Christ, not to our self-righteousness.